Matthew. I want to apologize up front. I've been traveling a lot the past month, and I've had time to record episodes, but just not enough time to edit them together. We're sitting on a great conversation about the online Defenders of Dictators, a walk through the small arms of the Syrian Civil War with Caliber Obscura, and a look at the likelihood of the end of the world, and which form it might take. But I just got off one flight, and I'm about to board another. So in the meantime, with everything going on in Syria right now, I wanted to revisit two episodes from earlier this year about the Civil War, the Revolution, and the Kurds. They're both important, they're both add valuable context to what's happening today. And they were recorded before I was mastering the audio properly. So I've done that and they should sound much nicer now than they did when they originally aired. Thanks for bearing with us. And I will talk to you next week. I promise stay safe until then. I don't think the war is over. I think the revolution is over. I think when you see people going back to the government held areas because they're sick of the war and because they're sick of the poverty. I mean, I'm not saying that like the government areas are are perfect, but I'm just saying that kind of the government gave them the option. It's either stability or freedom and chaos. And so of course people will choose the stability. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Derek Gannon. The United States military is officially leaving Syria. Maybe. On December 19th, 2018, President Trump declared the war on ISIS finished and announced the withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Syria. Since then, things have gotten complicated. On January 16th, an explosion killed 19 people, including four Americans. On the 21st, another explosion felled a convoy in northeast Syria. ISIS disclaimed responsibility for both of the attacks. Here to help us untangle what's going on is Lubna Marai. Lubna Marai is a Syrian photographer, journalist, and writer. She covered the Syrian war as a photojournalist for Reuters from 2012 to 2014. Currently based in Oakland, California, she is a frequent commentator and researcher on Syrian and Middle Eastern affairs. Her work has been published in major news outlets and publications such as The Nation, Time Magazine, Vice, and New Republic, to name a few. Most recently, she graduated from New York University receiving an MA in Near Eastern Studies. She's currently writing her first book. Lubna, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. So how did you first get involved in the Syrian revolution? Your father was actually a fairly senior official in the military, right? Um, He was not an official member of the Syrian government, but he's a businessman. And on my father's side, um, are very close with the Syrian government. So they're close with the Syrian government, but they don't have any official titles. What was it like in those early days and how did you get involved? Um... Honestly, it's like very hard to answer this question, but I remember in the beginning, I mean, like by the end of 2010, uh, I was 19 years old and uh, we were like many Arabs or like many people around the world. We were watching the Arab Spring in Egypt and in Tunisia. And I remember just like watching this news clips and wondering if that will ever happen to my country. And it did. Uh, In 2011, the Arab 
spring uh, reached Syria and uh, there was like tons of protests and then I joined those protests and to be honest um, I had no idea that the crackdown on the uprising would be this brutal by the government. You've spent time with a lot of the different fighting groups, you know, the the Free Syrian Army, uh, the Kurdish YPG fighters. Um, How do you see the breakdown in in the Syrian civil war? There seems to be a lot of factions playing into this. How do you see those kind of interspersed groups with different ideologies kind of working together? Like, how is that breaking down? Okay, but before we go to the... um to the uh, military side of the uprising, it's very important to remember that the first five months of the Syrian uprising was completely peaceful. I mean, yeah, there was like kind of pushback against the brutality of the police here and there, but the majority of the protests were not uh, uh, militarized. And uh, so it's, it's always important to remember that the beginning was peaceful and the uh, militarization of the uprising came as a natural result on the brutality of the police forces. Um, In June 2011, people started to defect from the Syrian army and they and then they started what was called today the Frisian Army. Uh, groups like uh, Jabhat al-Nusra or Jabhat Fath Hasham, they are not really fighting uh, for the same things that we used to fight for, like in the beginning of of the uprising. It's very it's very important to draw the line here between the rebels and these radical groups that because these radical groups consider the Syrian uprising as something that she that it should be fought against because they don't believe in democracy and they don't believe in human rights. And if they saw someone uh, with the uh, revolution flag, they will detain this person. Um, so yeah, it's like, just important to kind of draw the line here between Jabhat al-Nusra and, and uh, actual rebels. And you seen you, you were involved from the very inception of the rebellion, the protest, this 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 the civil protest. Do, was there a specific day where the of the leadership got together and says that we this is it we have to take up arms like okay so when that day happened actually uh i knew about it because i was still in jable which is my hometown which is um um which is actually today jable my hometown called the capital of martyrs due to the 30,000 young men who were killed fighting along the syrian forces so i'm from that small town very alawite town and I remember one time I was going from Jabla to Latakia and I saw the ambulances coming from Jusr al uh, And these ambulances had uh, the dead bodies of soldiers who were killed in Jusr al And this is where, that was the first time where um, a protest, I mean, like still there is like lots of debates around what happened that day, but that was the first time where protesters or people affiliated with the uprising pushed back against the police forces. Uh, So that day was kind of, that day was the day that um, we knew that, okay, there is something happening, that some people are actually pushing back against the police uh, brutality. And to be honest, that was extremely understandable because in the first few months thousands i'm not going to exaggerate but like i think hundreds of people were killed uh in protests like peaceful protests so the self-defense act was 
was very understandable and it was, it was very justified. Um, some activists argue that the self-defense or fighting against the government was the beginning of an end for the Syrian uprising because after the protesters started to fight back, it gave the justification for the government to escalate their violence against the protesters. And um, so, yeah, that was the day where people were like, oh, shit, there's something happening. What are your conversations with Westerners like, especially Americans? I'm curious, um, what do we fundamentally misunderstand about this conflict? God, I don't know how I can start with this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So many, so many. Well, what's one thing that you wish we all understood better? I mean, uh, so... Okay, so there is a difference between people who started to follow Syria in 2011 and people who started to follow Syria in 2016, okay? Like, those people who started to follow Syria in 2011, they mainly understand the timeline of the conflict. They mainly understand that, okay, what happened in Syria in 2011, in March 2011, was part of the Arab Spring. So understanding what what happened between 2011, for example, and 2016 is really important to understand how we got here, okay? But these people who started to follow Syria in 2016 they only see that, okay, it's a government against radical groups. Oh, it's like the U.S. backing up rebels against the Syrian government or Turkey is backing up rebels against the Syrian government. So I think the main misunderstanding or the the main misconception around this war is that people do not remember how it all started. And it started because there was a true organic uprising against a dictatorship. It wasn't because it's like a regime uh, regime change conspiracy coming from the West. Um, also, another thing that I wish people understood more, and I think maybe we, uh, maybe as Syrians, we didn't really do a good job by explaining and explaining to people here how Syria looked like before the war. And I think in just understanding how Syria looked like before 2011, people will understand why so many Syrians rebelled against this government. Okay, well, piggybacking off of that, something that we're hearing a lot in the West and from like American comment- commentators right now is that American withdrawal is going to be a step towards ending the war. Uh, and it'll certainly be a step towards ending America's involvement in the war, but it, but the conflict won't end when we leave, right? I, I mean, listen... In, in in an ideal world, I will be like, hey, we should stand against all interventions. We should stand against all foreign troops in Syria, blah, blah, blah and, and all of that. But today here, we're we not talking about, okay, if the U.S. withdraw, it means the final decision will be for Syrians. This is not going to happen. If the U.S. With, withdrew from Syria, what we're going to see in Rojava, a similar situation to what happened in Afrin. I don't know if you guys are aware of what, what's happening in Afrin, but uh, a couple of days ago was the anniversary of the Olive Branch operation and the situation in Afrin and the stories that we've been hearing from Afrin, just mind-blowing. And if Turkey took over these towns, like the Rojava towns, which probably will happen, we will just see what happened in Afrin, but on a larger scale. So here we are not talking about like the U.S. withdrawal and then, okay, it's going to be peaceful operation. No, it's going to be a battlefield for Turkey and the Russians. And again, Syrians are completely outside of the picture. In your opinion, should the United States stay? 
you should ask people who are in Qamishli, to be honest. Uh, but from what I'm seeing and from what I've been, I've been, I've been talking to my friends there and yes, they want the U.S. to stay. They want the U.S. to protect them from Turkey. Because, again, as I mentioned before, that the U.S. withdrawal means the Kurds will be fighting Turkey again. And this is this this is not going to be good for anyone. Al Jazeera just had an article that came out that basically Turkey uh, he basically <inaudible> had a, uh, the Sultan. Yeah, I basically had a phone call with the uh, with you know President Trump, I guess on Sunday, and he basically reiterated strongly, according to the article, that Turkey is ready to take over the the uh, Manbij region, the uh, Kurdish held regions in Syria. Is it a hundred percent guaranteed that the Kurds are going to are going to be attack or be attacking Turkish forces if this happens? I mean, honestly, I'm 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 like I'm not a fan of uh, hypothetical scenarios, but uh, I think from what we saw in Afrin, this will be repeated again in Rojava on a larger scale, mm-hmm. and I think uh, we will not be able to blame. Uh, the YPG or Kurdish forces if they decided to uh, seek help and support from the Russian and the Syrian troops, I mean, the Syrian government troops. Um, I think what is going to happen in Rojava, I think it's, it's again, it's not going to be good for anyone. And, and it's scary, you know, because like in the past years, despite all the mistakes that were being committed by the YPG, like the Rojava, uh territories are kind of the more the most stable uh territories in Syria today and it's just like heartbreaking to see like this whole experience going to be like crushed by Turkey which is going to happen probably what bothers me today in all the discussions that has been happening around like the with- the withdrawal especially from the american point of view is that they're focusing so much on isis i mean of course isis probably will come back on on like a larger scale but but like the true threat here is turkey the true threat here is erdogan and like we saw it before you know like i i, I know i keep repeating the afrin example because there is insane uh human rights violations happening in that very small well, town and no one is covering it let's i mean let's dig into that because that's something that western media doesn't talk about you're right and i think it is important like really explain to our audience what happened there and what might happen again? Oh, gosh. So so when Turkey invaded, I mean, Turkey and Arab rebels invaded uh, Afrin, the first thing they did is that they pushed the Kurds out of the towns, okay? And uh, during that time, uh, Al-Ghuta was being under siege, Al-Ghuta and, and the suburbs of Damascus. I mean, this is like, this is one example of what happened. So people were being pushed out of Al-Ghuta to Idlib, okay? And then uh, it, when c- civilians from Al-Ghuta reached Idlib, they were kind of encouraged in a way to go and take over the empty houses in Afrin. So here we, we started to see a demographic change in a Kurdish town, in, in a Kurdish town. So Afrin was like 39% or 20, uh, 93% Kurdish and 7% Arab. Now it's 50% Arab. So basically, the demographic, like the demography in Afrin, changed completely. Uh, the Arab brigades that are controlling uh, Afrin now are just the worst. 
brigades ever. They are killing people under torture, stories about waterboarding, stories about rape in jails. Uh, people are being killed under torture in jails and, and, and um, uh, interrogations in jails are happening uh, under the eye of the Turkish commanders. Uh, I was talking to my friend recently who just got out of uh, jail in Afrin and he told me uh, the interrogation was 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 being was done by a Turkish commander who had a translator, like like uh, like an Arab um, translator. I don't know why these stories are not being covered, and I don't know why. Uh, like even Arab activists, I feel we kind of let down this very small town that actually was the very first. Kurdish town to rebel against the Syrian government. So I don't know, just like this, 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 this whole situation there is really heart, heartbreaking, and I don't want it to be repeated in Rojava. I don't. To be clear, we're talking about ethnic cleansing led by Turkish forces. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure make that super clear for the audience. This is not the this is not the first time that I've heard of this. Um, but you're you're right. We it doesn't get a lot of coverage. Yeah, I mean, also because like it's very complicated because like these uh, this ethnic cleansing, sadly, is being uh, done by, uh, like by using Arab proxies. They are they're like they're they're using the rebels who once stood for, uh, you know, like democracy and like uh, like a united country for everyone. They are using these brigades in order to achieve their agenda in Syria and 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 I don't know seriously I I I have no words how disappointed are 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 regular Syrians especially you know with Trump saying hey we got what we wanted and now we're leaving like Mm-mm. how do you feel about I mean how does how do you and most Syrians that are that are a, that were are a part of this the Syrian civil war with that have stake in the game yeah, I mean to say that people had high hopes on the U.S. will be like um, will be like a big statement. I think Syrians, especially after the chemical attack in 2013, people just wanted any solution to hold the Assad government accountable. They just wanted any power to just stop the atrocities that that were being done uh, in Syria and that were being committed in Syria. Um, me personally, I think. Um, I'm not really, again, again, I'm not pro-intervention and I don't think, I, I, I cannot see how, you know, like the U.S. would have stopped the war in Syria. I think they only escalated the situation by just, you know, just like, this is such, this is such a hard question. I don't know how to answer. Like part of me, I feel that, okay, the ideal scenario would be just like to hold this and government accountable but how can you do that without any like a military intervention you know like how can you do that without supporting again like intervention you know but like we should not be supportive of any kind of intervention um but i think there must be some way again i am not a politician i don't know how 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 this things could be done but i think just showing the assad government any it's so hard to answer this question without sounding interventionist, you know? And like, I'm sure if someone heard this, it would be like, oh, she's like pro-intervention. Yeah, of course she wants like the U.S. to bomb the country. But like, 
this is not the case. Like Syria is not Iraq, you know, like 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 the demand for change, the demand for changing the government came from the people. You know, it was it. It was an organic uprising. It wasn't. It, it it was not regime change demanded by the West and people asking for intervention in order for protection. Like how I am going to tell someone who lost all his family and saw his 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 house being bombed on his head that no, you should not ask for intervention. Like intervention for people who are now in Syria is a survival act. It's not. You know, like. It's not something that, okay, people are asking because they're just like like pro-intervention and they love the United States. It's really happening out of out of desperation. That was a very hard question. I don't even know if I could have answered that either. It was designed to be a hard question because, I mean, that's this, it's basically that's the question that everyone's asking themselves right now. And you're right. A lot of people are coming into the, the, Syrian, the Syrian uprising into the civil war kind of late especially the people that have been following 2016 to 2018 now. I, it sounds like Syria is tired. Is is that? I mean, yeah, but like also like, like now if you ask anyone in Rojava, do you want the U.S. to leave? Of course they will answer no, we don't want them to leave, simply because they know if the U.S. left, that like the Turkish troops will probably come the next day. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, it's very hard to answer these questions if you, if if you are on a survival mode, if you don't know what the future is going to hold for you, like here we're not talking about an intervention where there is no other foreign uh, countries are intervening in the country, and and also like people talk about intervention, they only talk about the U.S. intervention. Why no one talks about the Russian intervention? Why why no one talk about like Hezbollah intervention? Why no one talks about Iran intervention? I mean, if if as activists we want to stand against all interventions there's just you know like stand against all interventions not only the u.s well let's talk about that okay so for example the uh russians have an air base which is 20 minutes from my hometown uh, Jable. uh they have uh, an air base they have a hospital there um uh, they are supporting the government with everything. They are supporting the government with troops on the ground and with uh, weapons and ammunition. Uh, I don't think the government would have won this war without the support of the Russians and the Hezbollah and Iran. Um, I mean, yeah, like Russia is like any other country. They want to have more uh, power in the region and that was the main reason why they supported the Syrian government. Uh, how it looked like, I don't know. I know that the Syrian government won the war because of these uh, foreign powers. Um, for example, the soldiers, these Syrian soldiers are being treated really badly compared to the Russian soldiers. Like, for example, if the Russian, if the Russian soldier was injured or was hurt, they will just move him to a private hospital and they will take care of him. But today in Jeble, for example, there is thousands of injured uh, government soldiers with no support whatsoever. Um, and there is, you know, like now after eight, seven years of eight years of the war, we we, we are starting to see kind of a, a pushback against the government and a pushback against how it treats it, it's, it has been treating these local soldiers like 
especially the Alawites. You just you you said something really interesting at the top of your answer that I wanted to circle back to. Um, you said you don't think the government would have won without Russia's help. Do you consider this war kind of over already? I was literally just arguing with someone earlier today about this. Uh, I don't think the war is over. I think the revolution is over. I think when you see people going back to the government-held areas because they're sick of the war and because they're sick of the poverty, I mean, I'm not saying that like the government areas are, are perfect, but I'm just saying that people just, they don't, you know, like, like kind of the government gave them the option. It's either stability or freedom and chaos. And so, of course, people will choose the stability and they, it's, it's very hard for me to answer such question because like, this is my personal opinion, you know, like, so, like so many Syrians will be arguing with me if I answer this way. But for me, yes, the revolution is over. Uh, it's over because it's not like that we failed, but because the Syrian government really used everything to destroy this uprising. And by the way, in the very, very, very beginning of the uprising, uh, the Syrian government supporters and its soldiers uh, used to write on um, on banners or on the walls in areas that were witnessing protests. Uh, they were writing, as said, or we burn the country. That was their main slogan. And they did that. They they literally burned the country in order to keep Assad in power. And so long story short, yeah, I think the revolution was destroyed, but not because we didn't deserve democracy or freedom or we didn't deserve change. No, because literally the government did everything they could in order to crush this uprising. And it gave a very good, you know, it's not like a very good example, but I think Bashar al-Assad today gave an example for dictators in the future that if there is an uprising in your country, you can crush it and you can get away with it. And today, honestly, like, I wonder if Hosni Mubarak is looking at Bashar al-Assad and be like, and, and like, he was like, okay, maybe I should have done that. Or like Ali Abdullah Saleh is looking at Bashar al-Assad and he was mm. like, okay, maybe, maybe I should have done that. Because Bashar al-Assad proved that you can kill 500,000 plus people in your country and get away with it. Although every human rights organization is saying that, okay, this dictator is killing his own people, but no one is able to stand up for him. It's like there's no consequences. Unfortunately, no. No, and like, uh, it is weird today after, you know, after almost nine years uh, from the beginning of the Arab Spring, how dictators today, I mean, like Sisi, for example, he talks about the revolutions or like the Arab Spring in a way that, okay, that was very that was a very bad thing, you know? So they use Syria and, and like Yemen and like Libya and every country that rebelled against the dictator as an example of what chaos is. Basically, these dictators are saying, okay, if you rebelled against me, this how you will end. And of course, no country in the world wants to end up in like in a raging civil war. But, and this is another hard question, but, but, from Assad's point of view, what are you left with? You know, what does he have and what does he, what does he even want at this point? And as also who are his supporters and what do they want? 
Um, I think the supporters of the Syrian government, uh, I mean, they are not all on the same page, but there is a like, but but there is a big chunk of the Syrian government supporters. And if we took the minorities as an example, if we took the Alawites as an example, they were convinced that this uprising is to destroy them, that this uprising was gonna uh, push them again back to the mountains and this uprising was just like to kill all the minorities um so there is like a big chunk of the government supporters that they are only supportive of the government because it's an alawite government um and they feel that okay having bashar al-assad in power is the only reason why they're alive um and i think most of alawite people kind of, you know, like he grew up believing that thing. Like I grew up believing that, you know, like that Hafez al-Assad was the reason why we we are like in the cities now or why we're not in the mountains anymore. So there, there is like, there is something that is rooted deeply in certain uh, societies in, the, uh, in Syria. So this is one part of the Syrian government supporters, but also there is like government supporters who just who are just like afraid, you know, who just like, okay, they know the Syrian government is bad. They know that, okay, there is a dictator. They don't mind sending their children to public schools where they will be chanting for the immortality of Hafez al-Assad who died like 10 years ago. They don't mind as long as there is stability and stability in the country. So it's like very hard to to ask what the government supporters want but it's clear that they were not willing to sacrifice anything for change. Do you see any reason for hope in any of these situations? Oh, dude, your, your questions are very hard. Okay. Like I did not prepare for that. I don't know why you're doing this to me. We don't mess around on this show. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I think, I think probably what I'm going to say next is something that all activists, not only in Syria, but every activist who took part in the Arab Spring kind of will agree with me in that, you know, like they will feel exactly how I'm feeling. But like it's very hard to witness something that is so big and so hopeful in your country and seeing and seeing it being destroyed and stay sane. It's extremely difficult and Sadly, I have I have uh, many friends who are dealing with depression, who are, you know, like just like doing drugs in order to kind of distance themselves. But the failure of the Arab Spring is really heartbreaking. And it's very hard to just like move on from that. And so like so many activists and i know that for a fact also the egyptian activists so many of the egyptian activists and the syrian activists as if they're stuck in 2010 and 2011 you know they're just like repeating memories they're just like seeing old videos they're like listening to old music they are stuck into that period of time refusing to believe that the thing they witnessed is completely gone and um so I don't know what is hope, to be honest. I think there is nothing to be hopeful about. 
just on a personal level, I think we should just do our best and, you know, just like try to move on and try to write our version of the history. Like we should not let dictators today like Sisi or or or, uh, or Hafez al-Assad to write their own version of the story. We should write what like what happened and what we witnessed. You're working on a book right now, your first book. Is it about this? Is that what you're you're doing? Are you are you telling the story? Well, the book starts before 2011. I speak about how what was it like to grow up in Syria and go to public schools and what was it like to grow up Alawite. Um I wanted to explain to people, I mean, it's, it's not to explain to people, but I, f- I feel that if I explain the history of Alawites in particular, people will understand or it will make sense why so many Alawites decide to uh, to side with the Syrian government. Uh, and then I speak about how I joined the uprising and then I speak about everything that happened on, on a personal level. And then... And yeah, and then between 2011 and 2014, I was in rebel-held areas. Uh, I tried to speak also about the mistakes that we did as activists. Um, it's like it's it's not like self uh, self criticism, but it's very important now to kind of look back and reflect on what we did wrong. Um, and then I speak about coming here to the U.S. and trying to start over and seek asylum in the Trump era. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to publish the book and working on it has been really kind of healing for me. And when do you have any idea when it's going to come out and where can people follow your work? I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. I don't really tweet that much because I hate pots and uh, and I hate trolls and I don't really tweet that much. But when I have a new article, I will I will post it on Twitter. Um, the date of the book is not really clear yet because I'm still in the process of pitching it to, uh, I mean, my agent. I'm now working with an agent that we're going to also uh, submit the proposal very soon. Um so I don't really have a clear date, but I kind of have a clear idea what this book is going to be or how the book will be structured. And um, and I think it's very important to have a book written by a Syrian who witnessed the revolution like out there. You know, I feel most of the books that were written on Syria are written by, with all due respect, with all due respect to all the books out there. But I feel that they just focus so much on the war and the uprising. Only few really spoke about living in Syria before 2011. And, um, and yeah, I think that's a missing puzzle of the story that needs to be told. Well, thank you so much for coming on to War College and sharing your story with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. And, and I'm sorry being for being distracted, but also your questions are really hard. I did not expect that. <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, again, it's just such a, you can't, when, you, when you're dealing with something like this, uh, especially as an outsider, I think the tendency on the part of Americans is to look away or simplify. Um, and you can't do that here. We, we have to stop doing that. And the simplifying, I think, I think the main problem uh, with the Syrian conflict and like all these so-called experts that they offer the simple 
narrative of this conflict. This is why they have so many followers. You know, it is easy now to go on your show and be like, hey, listen, it's a government against Qaeda and the Qaeda is supported by the U.S., that is like that is like a very simple narrative that every woke person in America who doesn't really follow the conflict will be, you know, will be okay with that uh, explanation, you know. But you cannot do that to the Syrian conflict. It's very important to understand the timeline. You cannot just like simplify things. It's a crazy eight years war. At times of hardship and difficulty, the mountains are your best friend, are your refuge, but also, you know, the other sort of bitter side of this story is that the Kurds have been really, uh, you know, betrayed by by both the international powers and also the regional the, the, the regional powers, I, I, I usually like to refer to the you know situation or the circumstances of the Kurds as some sort of a double colonial bind. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Derek Gannon. The Kurds are a people without a country. They occupy large swaths of lands in Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and Iran, but have no central government. Kurdish fighters have been constant allies in America's fight against ISIS and Peshmerga troops fighting on behalf of the semi-autonomous Kurdish regional government in Iraq fought against the militants after they stormed Mosul. Without the help of Kurdish forces at Mosul, Raqqa, and across the Levant, America couldn't have defeated ISIS so handedly. In December, after a conversation with Turkey's president, President Donald Trump announced U.S. troops would be leaving Syria on grounds that ISIS was defeated. Then, Things got complicated. It's unclear if the withdrawal will actually take place. Turkey thinks the Kurds are terrorists, and the Kurds are caught between regional powers in one of the most complicated conflicts in the world. Here to help us sort this out and get the Kurdish perspective is Mohamed Salih. Mohamed spent years working as a journalist for international media in Kurdistan. He's currently a doctoral student at University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. Mohamed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So really want to start with some really basic stuff for the audience here, Mohammed. Uh, what is Kurdistan? Where is it? And who are the Kurds? Well, Kurdistan is uh, basically the land that has been historically populated by the Kurdish people. There are also uh, a number of other, uh, you know, ethnic and religious groups uh, who have been, you know, leaving or populating that region for a very long time. But uh, geographically, it is located uh, on the border areas between the states of Iraq, Iran, Turkey and Syria. And uh, the Kurds are generally referred to as the largest uh, nation or national group without a state of their own. And, you know, this has been uh, basically a result of the great power, uh, you know, dealings and agreements uh, following World War One and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire as a result of that war. So, 
uh, what happened uh, after World War One or the First World War was that uh, the British and French colonial powers divided the Ottoman Empire into a number of different uh, nation states. And there was supposed to be, as part of, you know, a series of agreements, there was supposed to be a Kurdish nation state as well. But, uh, you know, that did not happen. And so uh, the the result, the outcome of that was that the Kurds uh, have been divided among these four nation states in the region. And unfortunately, they have been uh, grossly uh, mistreated uh, by the governments of these states, you know, over the past century or so. Okay. Well, so why do these regional governments, Turkey, Iraq, have so many uh, different ideas about who the Kurds are, where the territory sits. Yeah, well, the the primary, you know, the primary uh, reason why, if your question is, you know, why uh, these states and their governments have not been treating the Kurds justly, uh, I think, you know, the primary reason really has to do with the very conception of the idea of the nation in these newly emerging, you know, nation states after the First World War. So uh, what what has happened is that uh, in 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 all of these countries and but particularly in places like uh, Turkey and Syria, the dominant nationalisms have been uh, sort of defined along very narrow lines and terms, and they have been effectively ethno-nationalist regimes. Uh, that have have seen Kurds, you know, uh, primarily as some sort of a threat uh, to the well-being, to the survival of their nation-state, of their uh, nation-state projects. And, uh, you know, this viewing of the Kurds as the other, as a threat to the survival of these nation-states, uh, uh, as a threat to the survival of these nationalisms, has basically meant that these states uh, have not really refrained from any sort of means in order to uh, suppress the Kurds and to ensure that the Kurds would remain, you know, as a subordinate group within the borders of these uh, nation states. I think the clearest example of that and the one we've talked about on the show before is in Turkey, correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. So in the case of Turkey, uh, you know, right from the beginning when uh, Ataturk uh, basically launched, uh, you know, his war of independence and later the, you know, the nation state of Turkey. Uh, well, at the beginning, he made some overtures to the Kurds and, you know, tried to uh, rally the Kurds around his uh, struggle for the independence of Turkey. Uh, mostly along religious lines, which was kind of, you know, the the common uh, identity thread between both the Turkish population and the Kurdish population uh, in the country, as, you know, both groups are largely uh, Sunni Muslim groups. But after the, you know, the state of Turkey, the Republic of Turkey uh, was established by Ataturk, uh, he basically, you know, backpedaled from uh, any promises of, uh, you know, of inclusion that he had given to the Kurds uh, prior to that moment. And uh, in the case of Turkey in particular, you know, there has been a very sort of uncompromising view of what the character of this nation state is and should be like. And so, 
the the Turkish uh, you know nation state has been a purely ethnic Turkish uh, or has been conceived as a purely ethnic Turkish uh, nation state that has meant that you know uh, every other group in that country and as we know you know that that country that the country that we call Turkey today has been historically a very diverse uh, you know uh, territory and land but uh, with the with the establishment of the republic of turkey uh, the state has been constantly you know on sort of uh, some sort of crusade or a campaign in in various forms military and you know cultural and uh, other forms as well to to ensure the subordination and in many cases actually the erasure of the uh, culture or or of the identity of these other non-Turkish groups uh, within the borders of that uh, nation state, and uh, you know they they have been pretty successful in a way in terms of uh, melting to a very large extent a lot of these other you know sort of rival identities into this uh, Turkish uh, national identity. But in the case of the Kurds, because, you know, the Kurds uh, constitute such a large uh, sort of, you know, portion of the population of Turkey, something around 20 percent. And, you know, there has been a sense of Kurdish national awareness uh, since the late Ottoman times. So it has not been really a very successful project as far as the Turkish, uh, you know, nation state project has been concerned. They have not been really able to assimilate. Uh, or melt, you know, the Kurdish identity identity into this newly forged uh, Turkish national identity. So, you know, there have been different rounds of uh, armed struggle and, you know, political struggle uh, by the Kurds uh, toward, you know, this sort of exclusionary vision that has been at work uh, within this nation state, uh, which is Turkey. There's a there's a dream of a united Kurdistan uh, with what you've just said with the, along with the how Turkey's kind of handling the, the Kurdish, you know, positions and the Kurdish people. Is it possible in the future? Do you do you feel that there could be a united uh, Kurdistan? Well, it is very difficult to tell because of the very difficult uh, geopolitical circumstances uh, in the region and also because of the reluctance of the, you know, major world powers to recognize an independent Kurdish entity. Uh, like uh, a lot of people, when, you know, they, they talk about Kurds or Kurdistan would usually, uh, you know, say that the eventual dream is some sort of a united Kurdish state. But I think, you know, that is uh, not really necessarily the case. Uh, first of all, uh, because, you know, the Kurdish populations in each of these countries uh, have, you know, their own sort of particular characteristics, their own particular condition that, you know, they have been working with and struggling within. And not the aim of all these, uh, you know, Kurdish populations in each of these countries is even necessarily to establish an independent state, uh, you know, uh, we like uh, that that would secede from that country, you know, let's say, for example, an independent Kurdish state that would secede from Turkey or an independent Kurdish state that would secede from Syria. Uh, the the ultimate goal for the Kurds is really uh, the recognition of their cultural uh, and political rights, a recognition of their identity 
And, uh, you know, and as long as the nation states, as long as the, you know, central governments or regimes within these nation states uh, are, you know, willing uh, to genuinely accept this and, uh, you know, to 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 work with Kurds uh, as, uh, you know, as an important component of their states and allow them to enjoy cultural and political rights within, you know, within the territory that they uh, populate or occupy. I think that would be quite satisfactory, you know, to, to a lot of the Kurds. But the problem has been that, uh, you know, the policy, the attitude from these central governments has been really, by and large, one of denial or, uh, you know, just colossal oppression. Uh, amounting to, you know, genocide or ethnic cleansing. So, you know, it, w- within this kind of circumstances, uh, the Kurds have been, uh, you know, naturally resisting and uh, uh, reacting to, you know, to to these kind of oppressive measures. And, uh, you know, th- these really oppressive uh, policies of these central governments and regimes has really fueled, you know, the Kurdish desire uh, for, uh, you know, for for wanting to have some sort of of an entity, whether, uh, you know, that is in the form of an autonomous, genuinely autonomous entity within the borders of the nation states, or uh, you know, in the form of independence. So. Uh, you know, having said that again, uh, even if uh, hypothetically, you know, the Kurds would be able to secede from these governments, from these estates in each of the four countries, I think, you know, there are also some genuine differences among the Kurdish populations uh, that might not necessarily be conducive uh, to the creation of a united independent Kurdistan. Uh, and I think, you know, that is fine. Uh, and, you know, there are like a lot of uh, other cases of like, you know, one nation sort of uh, having, you know, sort of being uh, divided into more than one state, right? Uh, you have like a number, you know, uh, over 20 Arab uh, Arab states or, you know, even in, in, in cases like in Europe, you know, for example, you have Germany and Austria, which, uh, you know, share the same language more or less and you know uh, sort of uh, yeah. ethnically are are pretty close or the same but you know the, the, there is more than one nation state so uh, you know that th- that would not be necessarily sort of uh, you know something that Kurds would not be happy with but the most important thing as i said is really the recognition of the cultural and political rights and there is more than one way to get there to achieve that. And it doesn't have to be necessarily in the form of the creation of a new nation state, of a new Kurdish nation state, although that would be ideal to many Kurds uh, if it did not, uh, you know, lead to a major regional conflict. Uh, but again, the, you know, the, the, the recognition of the political and cultural rights are really what the Kurds are after. Now, that's something that's something more along the lines of what how I dealt with and what I was exposed to when I was in special forces when I was in Iraq I worked with very very closely with uh, a lot of Kurdish soldiers within the uh, Iraqi special operations command we built rapport with them uh you know some of these guys I still actually have actually talk to through some some form of social media uh, recently you know the um, the American troops have kind of been given a withdrawal order what's the general feeling you know especially with the kurds in syria and 
how do they feel about that withdrawal? Is it, is it something that they're taking personally or is, is there an opinion left or right there and within the Kurdish uh, population? In general, it has not been taken well at all. And there is a, you know, sense of uh, abandonment, if not betrayal among many Kurds uh, toward the U.S. Uh, you know, this has been probably one of the most successful examples of, uh, you know, of a relationship between the U.S. and a local population, really. And uh, the, the Kurds have been you know, very uh, grateful and uh, happy for this, uh, you know, assistance and cooperation that they have gotten from the United States uh, in the fight against ISIS. But, uh, you know, things are not sort of on a path yet that the Kurds would feel secure enough, uh, you know, to be sort of to be acting on their own. So the news of the U.S. military uh, you know, with the role or pull out from Syria has been really very worrying and concerning to a lot of Kurds. Uh, they, you know, uh, given the circumstances of the Kurds and given the general atmosphere of a lack of willingness, whether it's within Syria or the broader region and Turkey, you know, being such a major actor now in the Syrian affairs, uh, the, because of this unwillingness, this regional unwillingness to embrace the Kurds and uh, accept some sort of, you know, uh, genuine political status for the Kurds, uh, many of the Kurds are very rightfully concerned, you know, that once the U.S. troops are out, that would actually uh, encourage uh, the Syrian government, backed by the, you know, by by Russian military and Iran on the one hand. And Turkey enjoying, you know, the uh, the support of the NATO and the protection of the NATO, on the other hand, uh, trying to sort of bring an end uh, to the, you know, to the Kurdish-led political entity that has been sort of uh, established uh, in, in northern Syria since, to, you know, 2012, but particularly, you know, since the uh you know, they're joining forces with U.S. military in beating back ISIS uh, in, in northern Syria. So it is in no way, uh, you know, uh, really good news to, to Kurds in Syria or to Kurds in general in the region. And uh, very interestingly, you know, uh, it's one of those things that uh, the Kurds across the board, no matter what their, you know, political or ideological differences otherwise, they agree on, you know, on on this, that, you know, that this is not a good thing and that, uh, you know, this is going to expose Kurds uh, to, you know, to the brutality of these regimes in the region. And uh, we already, I mean, you know, the, know how regimes like uh, the, the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad or, uh, you know, or Erdogan's really have been treating and dealing with the Kurds. Uh, in the case of, uh, you know, Erdogan and Turkey, for example, last year, right around this time, uh, you know, they conducted a military operation in Afrin region in northern Syria, which is a predominantly Kurdish populated region. And uh, what the Turks really did with the help of their uh, Syrian rebel allies, uh, you know, that have many jihadi groups among them, is that they have committed a larger scale ethnic cleansing of Afrin from the Kurds. So what they have done is 
basically, you know, expel the Kurds from their homes, take over their property and settle, uh, you know, Arab uh, refugees, uh, Syrian Arab refugees who, or, uh, you know, Turkmen refugees who moved to uh, Turkey or have been uh, displaced from the, you know, environs of Damascus. And like settle these people in the homes and properties of the local, you know, Kurdish, Yazidi and uh, Christian populations of Afrin. So, uh, you know, th- there is really no benefit of doubt that the Kurds can extend to uh, to Turkey or even to Syria. But, you know, probably to a much lesser extent uh, to Syria when it comes to, you know, to 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 dealing with these governments and regimes in the region, really. Who do you believe is the biggest threat to the Kurds in the region, both in Syria and Iraq? Who, who do you believe that did you you had mentioned jihadi groups working along with the uh, the pro Assad uh, forces? Correct. Well, no, the working along the uh, Turkish military in Afrin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I would uh, at the moment the way that things appear, I think you know there is more or less a consensus among many Kurds, uh, you know, that Turkey probably poses the greatest threat in some ways. And I mean, it's a very complicated picture. I don't want to simplify it. Uh, you know, Turkey, for example, deals with the Kurdistan regional government in Iraq has, uh, you know, uh, relatively strong uh, economic ties, in particular, with them. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, there is this undertone of uh, animosity, uh, even in the case of Iraqi Kurdistan, you know, uh, that uh, that is coming out of Ankara. But in particular, uh, with regard to the Kurds in Syria and the Kurds in Turkey, uh, you know, the, the Turkish government has been very vocal and serious in stating, you know, that it sees, you know, the Kurds in these uh, countries, the Kurdish political movements uh, as, you know, as a threat uh, to its national security. And now you can debate, you know, whether that's a fair and legitimate, uh, you know, sort of perception to have or not. But uh, also, given you know the fact that Turkey is a mem- is a member of the NATO and is the strongest of all the states in the region uh, that have Kurdish populations inside them, uh, Turkey definitely you know given its highly aggressive and uh, bellicose attitude and policies toward the Kurds, and also you know the sort of uh, the international. Uh, position that it enjoys, uh, you know, at the moment poses really the most serious uh, sort of threat to Kurdish ambitions in the region. And uh, even though, you know, uh, I mentioned that Turkey has been dealing with the Kurdistan regional government, there have been, you know, uh, very strong uh, polit- economic relations and political relations to some extent as well, diplomatic engagement. But Turkish uh, officials, including President Erdogan himself, have, uh, you know, said, uh, uh, like on a number of occasions, that uh, they do not really view, you know, a Kurdish entity anywhere in the region favorably. And that applies uh, to the Kurdistan region because they see any sort of, you know, success uh, of the Kurdish political movements in any of the states. Uh, as some sort of uh, threat to the, you know, to the territorial integri- integrity and national security 
uh, of their country. Uh, but, you know, as I said also, you know, this is something that is really debatable. And uh, if Turkey were to modify its, uh, you know, position, the way that it ideologically sees the Kurds, and if it were to, uh, you know, uh, to be willing to engage with the Kurds in the region, it could really gain and benefit much from, you know, having the Kurds on its side. And as I said, especially in the case of uh, Turkey and also Syria, the Kurdish political movements, there are not pursuing, uh, you know, a project of an independent Kurdish state. So, uh, you know, Turkey should welcome that, should embrace that and, you know, should try to accommodate Kurdish uh, political demands and aspirations. Uh, and, uh, you know, then that would really open the doors uh, to, you know, to extensive cooperation, you know, between Turkey and the Kurds, with, whether it's within Turkey or in Syria or Iraq, you know, or generally across the region. Do you see Turkey flexing to recognize the Kurdish regime or at least give them political recognition? Do you see them leaning towards that? You mean in Syria? In Syria, yeah. Well, I mean, there have been some signals recently coming out of Ankara that, uh, you know, there is apparently, I don't want to say some sort of effort, but this idea has been floated, you know, that uh, a, a military campaign against Syrian Kurds uh, would not necessarily be, you know, successful for Turkey. And there seems to be some, uh, you know, serious concern within uh, Turkish military establishment uh like about this which led uh, the turkish president actually apparently to replace the two main the two main generals who were assigned with the task of a you know of a military operation into northern syria because they had uh, voiced uh, you know a skepticism about the success of any such military campaign so uh, you know, there, there, this idea has been floated recently that maybe, you know, the best way to tackle this is to, A, uh, revive, you know, uh, the so-called peace process within Turkey between uh, the Turkish government and, you know, the Kurdish Workers' Party, which is the main, you know, Kurdish political organization in Turkey, although it is, you know, an outlawed one in Turkey. And, and, you know, so the idea is if uh, this peace process were to be revived and if, uh, you know, Turkey and Kurds meant, fa- you know, fences, uh, that would smooth things uh, when it comes to Syria. And, and if that happened, you know, that is quite likely that any serious rapprochement inside Turkey between the, the Turkish government and the Kurds or the Kurdish political movement in Turkey would really play a very important role in facilitating and understanding a positive, you know, relationship between Turkey and, uh, you know, the Syrian Kurdish political entity. So, uh, but, uh, you know, given the circumstances of uh, Turkey and the dynamics within, you know, uh, Turkish national politics, this is not also something, you know, that is easy to happen. It is not impossible. It could be achieved. It could happen. But, uh, the dynamics, especially, you know, the, the political dynamics within the, uh, you know, ethnic Turkish sphere in, in Turkey are such that, you know, any sort of aggressive or uh, bellicose policies toward, you know, the Kurds or, you know, the Kurdish political movement in Turkey is always, 
you know, quite conducive uh, to the parties in power in terms of helping them, uh, you know, maintain uh, sort of their, you know, their status and, and being able to, you know, to win votes and succeed in elections. And Erdogan has been doing, you know, quite a lot of that and pretty successfully over the past few years. As we have seen that, you know, usually around the time of any major elections in Turkey, whether it is, you know, the parliamentary elections or municipal elections or presidential elections, uh, you know, Erdogan has been uh, sort of uh, starting some sort of uh, military operation against PKK or Syria, you know, or, uh, you know, the, the Kurdish-led entity in northern Syria. And he, he has been able to use that to his advantage to win over, you know, uh, those sections uh, of the Turkish population who do not favor, you know, a, a sort of rapprochement or agreement with the Kurds. So it seems to be, even though, uh, you know, uh, it, it's bad policy, so to speak, it's it's been really good politics for Erdogan and he has been able to use you know this anti-kurdish uh sort of you know attitude and uh, policy to his advantage uh, within the sphere of uh, domestic turkish national politics let me ask a, a dumb american question uh if i can well they they say you know there's no dumb question there can be only <laughs> dumb answers oh well let me ask an ignorant american question then it seems to me that from the outside looking in i know this is a really complicated conflict but the kurds were inst- the kurds in various regions and in various uh ways were instrumental in defeating a what what isis which was a not just an existential threat but a direct threat to a lot of these regional powers did that not buy them any kind of political goodwill from any from anybody? Why does it feel like that didn't earn them anything? Well, I would say, unfortunately, no. And that, that's actually a great question. You know, one would think that given the prominent role that the Kurds have played in, uh, uh, you know, in defeating the Islamic State or, you know, the so-called ISIS, that you know that there should be some sort of change in regional attitudes both maybe at the popular level but also sort of at the more elite political level uh, but uh, at least when it comes uh, you know to the elite uh, political level we have not really seen that and that is again you know as i said it it, it goes back uh, to the very way that, uh, you know, these nation states in the region, no matter, you know, the change of government or the change of regimes, have by and large come to view Kurds as a threat to the survival of their own, you know, states or their own sort of, you know, uh, national projects. And unfortunately, you know, this very hostile view toward the Kurds uh, has been, you know, very sort of very much persisting, has been very resilient. And, uh, you know, has sort of transcended these, uh, you know, changes of, as I said, political regime or ideology, more or less. You you have to, you know, uh, to really uh, sort of uh, separate the state of Iraq from the other ones in this case, as at least, you know, in the last couple of decades or so, there has been sort of more flexibility from the Iraqi governments to, to a certain extent toward you know the kurdish uh, question within their within that country and there has been you know sort of a better understanding 
But uh, generally speaking, broadly speaking, you know, the prominent role that the Kurds have played in defeating ISIS, uh, which, as you said, ha, you know, posed a very serious threat to the very existence uh, of these, you know, at least of the, you know, uh, the, the, the political system and the state in, in both uh, Iraq and Syria, uh, you know, the, the central governments have not been really uh, willing to sort of use that to turn over a new page in their relations with the Kurds. And as I said, you know, as complicated as the Kurdish question is in the region and within the, you know, sort of boundaries of each one of these uh, states, each of these states, it is not something that cannot that cannot be solved. It actually, uh, you know, if if there was some sort of flexibility, if there was some, uh, you know, willingness to understand and to engage with the Kurds and uh, grant them, uh, you know, uh, some form of genuine political and cultural autonomy within the borders of these nation states, you know, that would uh, definitely, you know, uh, play a very important role in terms of easing, you know, the regional tensions uh, as far as, you know, the Kurds and the central governments in these states are concerned. But also it would really contribute great, greatly to improving the relations between, you know, each one of these states. So, you know, the interstate relations, because, uh, you know, it has happened on multiple occasions uh, that the Kurdish question has been also a cause of uh, tension between, you know, the regional states. Uh, and so, you know, a, a, a genuine resolution of, uh, of the Kurdish question in the region within, you know, uh, each state would contribute a greatly to domestic stability within the borders of, uh, you know, those states but also contribute uh, very significantly to improving interstate relations and really, you know, sort of unleashing this potential that these states have in terms of, uh, you know, development and progress and not using a lot of their resources to, you know, to suppress and oppress and ensure the subordination of the Kurds. There, there's been we've we've talked to us uh, uh, some Syrians here on this radio on on the podcast here, and it's it's the Syrian conflict. I'm going to say conflict is confusing to many people that are casually observing it. Initially, you know this the Syrian the Syrian people that it started this thought it would be a revolution, not unlike their own Arab Spring that they saw in Egypt and in in the northern African countries. And once, like the larger groups of folks got got together and got involved, such as Russia, um, Turkey, United States, and even uh, you know Kurdish factions, it seems to have most people can you know, kind of they hear the Syria they hear the Syrian conflict and they immediately assume it's about ISIS. Uh, how do you see the Syrian folks that were there at the initial onset of the revolution that's kind of metastas that metastasized into a civil war and has now kind of lost its revolutionary? kind of base how did the how did the syrians that are anti-assad see kurdish kurdish factions in the north and afrin and elsewhere in syria how do they see them do they see them as them helping the revolution or are they just part of the problem 
Well, I mean, you know, we have to make a number of distinctions here. First of all, as you said, you know, the what started in Syria in 2011 was a, you know, genuine popular uprising from a population uh, who was largely, you know, fed up uh, with a dictatorship running the country and, you know, robbing off, uh, robbing them off of their potential and their resources. Uh, you know, for a better future and for a more humane future. And, you know, uh, at, at that stage, uh, the, the protests were not only confined uh, to places, you know, to sort of the larger cities like uh, Damascus, Aleppo, uh, Homs or Hama. There were also quite, you know, substantial protests uh, happening in, in the Kurdish parts of Syria. But uh, unfortunately, you know, the way that, uh, you know, that, uh, situation in Syria evolved. It uh, gradually moved from a peaceful, you know, uprising by the Syrian people of all, you know, different sort of ethnic or religious backgrounds. Uh, probably, you know, maybe to a lesser extent, so in the Alawi areas, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, you know that that sort of peaceful uh, uprising really evolved into a uh, you know uh, conflict between the population and the uh, the Assad regime, and of course you know the the culprit for this was really the Assad regime and uh, you know their main backers uh, who were you know were the the, the who were the Iranian uh, regime uh, at that point early on in the conflict, so they resorted to. Uh, violently suppress the protest, and gradually, you know, that uh, sort of extensive and brutal use of uh, violence, uh, you know, led to, uh, you know, uh, to the creation of uh, sort of an armed uh, resistance or, rebe or rebellion uh, among, you know, the ranks of protesters. And, you know, gradually, unfortunately, that, you know, that armed rebellion, that armed rebellion came to be taken over by, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, jihadi Salafi groups uh, of the type, uh, you know, of uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, which is affiliated with Al-Qaeda or, you know, later on ISIS. And so, you know, th th this uh, situation in Syria has to be really seen uh, in different stages, and uh, each stage is really different, you know, from what uh, came before or after. So, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, right now, uh, you know, at this point of time, what we have is that, you know, uh, that sort of initial uh, hope inspiring you know sort of movement that we saw in in Syria in 2011 and to some extent you know uh, at the sort of uh, beginning of 2012 somehow that is gone what we now have or what uh, you know we we sort of came to see later after you know that point with the takeover of the uh, Syrian uprising by armed groups that came to be dominated gradually by, uh, you know, Salafi jihadi groups that really, you know, espouse uh, very strict and exclusionary visions as to the future of Syria. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, so, sort of what has remained in terms of, uh, you know, armed groups of, of the Syrian uh, uprising, is that most of these groups today, 
viewed the Kurds very negatively for a number of reasons. A, because, you know, the Kurdish, uh, or at least in the case of the uh, Democratic Union Party or PYD, which is the dominant uh, Kurdish party in Syria now, uh, because the PYD did not really engage the Syrian regime militarily that much, uh, you know, except like very short episodes of confrontation, the, these groups have come to, you know, uh, view the Kurds uh, pretty negatively. Uh, they see them as not having contributed, uh, you know, as much as they would like to, you know, to to the Syrian revolution, if you if you would like to call it that way. But uh, also, you know, there has been a huge ideolo- ideological gap uh, with the, you know, Islamization really of the. And given, you know, that the Kurdish uh, political groups in Syria, whether it's PYD or the others, are really, you know, very strongly secular and uh, articulate and espouse, you know, very sort of a very secular vision for the future of the country. The, so, you know, the, 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 the gap, you know, that, that has really deepened and broadened the gap between the uh, you know, other uh, factions of the, you know, Syrian sort of the, the armed factions of the Syrian uh, revolution uh, and, and, and the Kurds. So at this point of time, what you have is that, you know, a lot of these armed uh, Sunni Arab groups in the country are allied with Turkey, which, of course, you know, poses an existential threat to the survival and the future of the Kurdish political entity in Syria. But, uh, you know, these groups have been really also uh, not showing any attractive example in terms of, uh, you know, local uh, management and administration of the area that they have been uh, controlling. And by that, I mean, you know, the Syrian Sunni Arab Islamist groups. But contrary to that, what you have on the Kurdish side, uh, in basically in areas east of the Euphrates River, is that you have a quite inclusive political entity with a, uh, you know, markedly really secular character in the sense, you know, that Unlike, for example, uh, areas in Idlib province that are, uh, or in Afrin, which are controlled by these uh, Islamist groups, you know, who are very serious about imposing the rule of Sharia. Uh, in the Kurdish held areas, you know, uh, th- there is a very secular sort of arrangement uh, on the ground uh, where, you know, there isn't really any sort of Sharia being imposed on people. People are given the freedom in terms of you know, exercising their religious beliefs. And also, it has been a very inclusive entity in terms of trying to absorb and accommodate the local non-Kurdish populations, you know, such as the Sunni Arab population, such as the Christian population or Turkmen population or Yazidi population. So, uh, you know, given that it has been operating, really, that it was a born and uh, sort of has been leaving under, you know, conditions of war, this political entity, you know, in in, in northern or northeastern Syria that has been established and led by the Kurds has done a really great job in terms of becoming a safe haven 
for all sorts of, you know, ethnic and religious groups in the country and a place where, you know, a lot of those uh, individuals and people who have been, you know, escaping both the brutality of the Assad regime, but also the brutality and the ideological strictness of the, uh, you know, Islamist groups in the rest of uh, Syria. The, 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 you know, the Kurdish-led uh, entity has been really sort of, you know, a, a haven, a home to to all of, you know, these different types of people and groups. So uh, at this point, you know, the way that it is to sort of put it uh, very briefly, there seems to be a very major gap between the Islamist factions of the, uh, you know, Syrian uh, rebellion and the Kurds. Uh, and, uh, you know, th- there has been a broad international recognition of the good work, of the good job that the Kurds have done, uh, you know, given their very limited resources and given the great, you know, strain and a stress of operating under a war. Uh, but, uh, you know, contrary to that, uh, the world also has really come to recognize that a lot of these other Syrian, you know, factions and uh, primarily the Islamist ones have really, uh, you know, not been able to espouse anything and any sort of vision that is attractive, A, uh, you know, to their own populations, but also to the outside world and quite to the contrary some of them such as you know Jabhat al-Nusra or ISIS uh, have become you know a global security threat and not only you know sort of confined within the borders of Syria or the region so you know the 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 at this point as i said the way that things are you know, the, the Kurds have come to uh, sort of uh, win a lot of support and recognition for the work they have done. And, you know, that has been really quite the opposite of what uh, a lot of the armed Syrian, you know, rebel factions have achieved. So I think that may be one of the most thorough answers we've ever gotten to any question on this show. I know, and he, I know, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I got one final question. So I recently heard a Kurdish saying, or what I've been told is a Kurdish saying, and I think that it kind of uh, sums up a lot of this, uh, and I wanted to just run it by you and, and, and get your thoughts, and if you can explain to the audience like why it's important. And the way I heard it told to me was that the Kurds have no friends but the mountains. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so, uh, you know, that's a quiet sort of famous, uh, you know, Kurdish saying, at least to the Kurds themselves. So, and, you know, this is basically a saying that is born out of the very difficult uh, conditions uh, or circumstances uh, of the Kurds, you know, uh, whether it's over the past century or before, but especially over the past century, you know, where the Kurds have been subjected to, as I said, you know, highly oppressive, highly brutal uh, policies from the central governments of the states that they were sort of forced to be part of. And, you know, there has been sort of this constant uh, state of rebellion, whether political, but very often also armed rebellion. Uh, by the Kurds uh, toward the central governments and the states, uh, you know, that they've uh, sort of come to become part of. And so, you know, that saying basically uh, sort of comes from that sort of background and history. 
where the Kurds have uh, taken refuge uh, in the mountains. And, you know, the vast majority of Kurdistan, the, the greater Kurdistan, whether in Iraq, in Syria, oh, and not Syria so much, in Iraq, Turkey and Iran are, you know, very mountainous. And so, uh, you know, these mountains have been always a home for uh, Kurdish, you know, revolutionaries and rebels. And uh, so, you know, th that saying basically comes from that bitter experience that, A, at times of hardship and difficulty, the mountains are your best friend, are your refuge. But also, you know, the other sort of bitter side of this story is that the Kurds have been really, uh, you know, betrayed by by both the international powers and also the regional po the, the, the regional powers, uh, and you know, I, I would I, I I usually like to refer to the you know situation or the circumstances of the Kurds as some sort of a double colonial you know bind that the Kurds are in 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 a double colonial bind. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, first of all, after the First World War, the, uh, you know, the European uh, Western colonial powers, uh, Britain and uh, France, they uh, refused to, uh, you know, to recognize and help Kurds achieve an independent state of their own. And uh, after, you know, that happened and the Kurds were forcibly made part of these other states uh, with the blessing of the Western colonial powers, it, that really these, you know, these uh, nation states that emerged in uh, early 20th century, they have also objected the Kurds uh, to a, you know, new colonial relationship whereby uh, you know, historically, they have been, you know, uh, taking the resources of the Kurdish areas, you know, whether it's like oil and gas or other minerals, uh, and, and have been using these to really build uh, or help build their, you know, war machinery, which they have also used, again, to suppress the Kurds and, and you know, uh, force key to force Kurds to stay part of their estates. So, uh, you know, that, that condition of uh, double colonial bind has been really going on, you know, for a century, uh, ever since, you know, the, the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the establishment of the modern nation states in the region. And that bitter historical experience has meant that, you know, generations of Kurds have been living in, you know, in a states of conflict and warfare vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, the, the central governments. And these central governments have done, you know, very often, uh, you know, the best that they could in terms of uh, brutally suppressing uh, any sort of Kurdish movement for, you know, for political and cultural recognition. And uh, so, you know, to to sort of put it in a nutshell, th that saying is really born out of a, you know, of, of, of that kind of history. Mohammed, thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about this. I appreciate that, too, and I hope it was good. Thank you so much, War College listeners. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Kevin O'Dell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. I promise we will absolutely be back next week. I think you're really going to like the next one. It's a little weird. Stay safe until then.